I wanted to talk a little bit today about um, meditation. But in a specific way. How many people have practiced for less than a year? And between one and three years. And over three years. Thank you. So we, we tend to hear these teachings on uh, meditation and mindfulness has become uh, such a part of the zeitgeist, a part of the culture and, and the, the language of mindfulness is um, kind of seeping into all, so many aspects of our culture, whether it's education or medicine, science, neuroscience is really studying the brains of meditators. Uh, so it's, it's being absorbed into the culture in, um, in many ways. And of course, that's good news and not so good news, right? Because sometimes uh, when, as we know in our culture, we can cheapen anything, <laughs> right? We, we know how to do that really well. And yet, there is something quite beautiful about um, a contemplative or a meditative aspect being introduced into daily life. And so sometimes when we hear the word mindfulness or we hear meditation, we all have very different um, ideas about what that is, depending on uh, from whom we've heard it and how they've described it. And so uh, I want to just talk a little bit about um, w one of the most important parts of the meditation practice. Because I think that uh, what happens, especially when we have gatherings like this and there is such a diversity of experience, is um, that we may skip over things uh, for the people who are beginners, or we may um, dumb it down a bit for the people who have been practicing for a while. And so I think one of the ways to meet that with balance is to really talk about the aspect of meditation from the point of view of the, of the Buddha's teaching. And his, his teaching of it is in a sutta it's one of the shortest suttas, actually, in the, in the, the uh, collection of discourses that have come down to us. It's called the Satipatthana Sutta, and it's, it's literally 10,000 words. So it's, it's, quite, it's not that complicated or long a sutta, but it has, it has really formed the basis for most of the meditation teachings that you have probably heard. And this, this teaching is, uh, that the Buddha gave is basically uh, specific instructions on how to practice. And so it's worthwhile 
to keep going back to that ba to those basic instructions and to understand them as well as we can. And what we know with these teachings is that no matter how experienced you are, and I've certainly seen that in my own practice, is that over the years I keep going back to the basic suttas and every time I read them I see something else. So that as you practice and as you, be, as you have, as you get experience, you begin to, to read the words or hear the words in different ways and with different facets. And it's, and it's quite beautiful because it, it unfolds in that way, it matures in that way. Our, our understanding of it matures more and more and more and more. And there is always more that we can learn. So whatever your level of experience, um, it's perfectly wonderful that you hear it from that perspective. There's no other perspective from which you can hear it. But to, to not think that if you're a beginner that it's beyond you, or if, you're, or if you're an experienced meditator, that you've heard it before. Because if you pay attention, what happens is some other aspect of understanding opens up for you. So, um, first I'm going to uh, just summarize these four foundations of mindfulness, and, um, and then I want to talk specifically about one particular foundation, which I think is seminal. So to fully realize our human condition and to learn how to develop its potential, which is what we do here, what we practice here, we begin by investigating ourselves really closely. We look at this mind-body and see if we really understand how it works. We dig deep beneath the surface into um, the aspects of our being. And for this, we need a really sharp tool to dig, right? Just as if we were um, archaeologists, we wouldn't go just with our hands. We would use the axes and all of that to dig down deep. So we, we want a clear eye to see with and an attitude of impartial curiosity. Really important. And, it, and I just want to put a little asterisk there and say, if you just reflect on impartial curiosity, what you'll notice is how much of a habit we have of not being impartial, right? We have very definite ideas about everything, and we think they're right. And so the third foundation of mindfulness, <coughs> excuse me, that um, we're going to talk about a little bit about is really that, um, that one foundation that will help to unearth the ways in which we are not impartial and uh, help us to develop the impartiality that's needed. And this impartial curiosity <clears throat> and this tool to dig with and this clear eye to see with are all provided by the mental faculty known as mindfulness. Mindfulness is best described as non-reactive, non-interfering awareness. 
keep those in mind, non-reactive and non-interfering. It's pure knowing without any of the projections of our ego or of our personality added to the knowing. Sometimes you'll see it described as bare awareness. So we shift into mindfulness by withholding reactions, by um, withholding as much as possible any judgments or sentiments about what might appear in the field of awareness. So, for instance, if we notice a thought has arisen, we simply acknowledge that fact without thinking, oh, this is a good thought, or this is a great thought. And you know that one, right? Oh, maybe I should stop meditating and write it down because it's really good. And so in ordinary consciousness, we would engage in some way with the thought or get involved with the meaning or with the emotional charge of it or um, what it's all about. So we'd get caught by the content of it. And all of that um, being caught in it and and acknowledging it, I'm sorry, and, and analyzing it or commenting on it or judging it, that... Um, lose, in doing that, we lose our ability to see the thought as just a thought. Right? And a lot of the time what happens is we then we get identified with it also. Right? This is my thought. This is right. And we, we know about righteous indignation and how that kind of develops. So when we do that, we fail to notice its origin its effect, and its duration. Because we get so caught in the content of it, we miss the process of it. So we become the thought itself. Right? We collapse. Who we are collapses into this passing event, and we become totally identified with the content of it. And so the same with sights and sounds and smells, and sensations and emotions. So in our, in our uh, normal state of consciousness, we're constantly lost in the drama of um, our mental, uh, of our lives. And we're unaware of uh, how what is taking place is created we lose um, our ability to actually know what's happening. So in, in my former days, I worked in the Bahamas from time to time. I spent a lot of time there, and I, when I met my husband, he was also living there, and so I spent a lot of time between New York and the Bahamas. And I'd go to the movies, you know, to take a break. And it was really wonderful because the people in the movies, that would go to the movies in in that culture, they would talk to the screen, right? So if there was, um, you know, a, a, a kind of scary movie and there was, you know, some scary person with a knife, 
people in the theater would yell out, watch out, watch out, he's behind you, he's be- duck, duck, right? And it was a beautiful example of how we get so caught up in the, the movie of our lives that we forget that what's re- actually happening is there's a projector behind us and there's a blank screen and there are um, uh, particles of light being projected onto the screen and they, which appear to us as human beings with a story. So we're absorbed in the momentum of the story and our thoughts and, and emotions are manipulated by the images that we're seeing. But if at just that moment we were to kind of turn back and see, oh, there's a projector back there, we would see how the images are being produced and we wouldn't be so caught. We'd recognize that we were just lost in these flickering beams of light. So we'd, we, um, we might be able to turn back and lose ourselves again in the movie, but we wouldn't be quite so um, subject to its power. Because, why? Because the maker of the, the illusion has been seen. So similarly, in mindfulness meditation, we look deeply into our own movie-making process. We begin to see the mechanics of how our personal story gets created and how we project that onto everything we see, hear, taste, smell, think, and do. So sometimes, you know, people don't want to see through the drama of their own movies because it feels unromantic. Right? It feels like, but that's who I am. But that's precisely the point. Mindfulness is meant to be an antidote to sentimentality. So when we see how the picture show is produced, we don't take it quite so personally. And that means a lot less suffering. And isn't that the point of our practice? So because we're lost in the contents of our mind, we don't see what in the Dharma is called the true nature of mind. So what's the true nature of mind? It's clarity. It's openness. It's luminosity. And when we can recognize that, what comes is clarity and ease in that recognition. And strangely enough, we don't see the true nature of mind because we're standing in the line of the sight of that true nature of mind. So with mindfulness, it's as if we pull aside um, the screen. We pull aside um, the screen of personality and we see for ourselves. And that's what the Buddha called a hipasiko. He said, come and see for yourself what's actually happening. So as it spreads into our culture, what I really hope is that 
we won't lose that understanding that what we're really working with is to use this power of mind as the key to self-awareness and spiritual liber liberation. And that's what mindfulness is, um, is about. We talk about it um, as, we really talk about the, uh, the side effects of it. But a lot of the time, we forget to talk about that seminal and central point is that it's a really powerful um, instrument. And to remember, and in the teachings, it's, uh, we're reminded that everything that we do, the value of what we do, the consequences of what we do, of what we think, what we do, and what we speak, all of those happen not because of the actual acts or words, but because of the intention, the mind, behind those acts and those words. That our intentionality is what creates our world. And so when we did that metta practice this morning, where we remind the heart that we can bring goodwill to our relationships, both with ourselves and with others, we're reminding ourselves of the intention of goodwill and harmlessness, which the Buddha says is part of wisdom. So this, medit this mindfulness meditation is not trivial. It, can act it actually does. When you practice, it changes everything. Why? Because it changes the way we relate to the mind, the way we understand the mind. So as the Buddha said, all things all things, not some things, but all things can be mastered by mindfulness. And it's the, it's the method that the Buddha used to attain his own enlightenment, which we know was powerful and significant. And so the Satipatthana Sutta is what he gave us to... Um, as a guide to the, our own self-exploration. And in it, he says, uh, well, the, the basis of it is we don't need a belief. We don't need a belief in the Buddha. We don't need a belief in Nibbana. We don't need a belief in reincarnation or any concept or any deity. There's no... There's, there's nothing like that that's required. What it is is clearly systematic, down-to-earth process of self-realization that each of us can follow for ourselves. And what did the Buddha say about it? He said, this is a way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destroying of pain and grief, for reaching the right path, for the realization of Nibbana, 
namely these four foundations of mindfulness. Gets my attention, don't know about yours. And then he said that the four foundations are um, the fundamental components of the human condition. So the first is the physical elements that make up our body, which I mentioned in, in the instructions, right? Earth, air, fire, and water. And some, uh, some Buddhist thought also includes space. So he pointed to the body, said, look at the postures of the body. We, we sat, we looked at sitting. Look at the elements of the body. And then look at the process of breathing. So we did all of that in the first, in, as we sat, and that's our first foundation. And then the second is sometimes, uh, you'll see it described as in a word called Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A, which means the feeling tone that arises with every contact with our senses. So every time we have any kind of contact with the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, etc., something arises called feeling tone. We, we recognize it as either feeling pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So another way of looking at it is to pay attention to the nervous system that gives us sentience. Because that's, that's the, the um, way that we feel these pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And there are actually people who don't feel uh, those things. And it's, it can be very dangerous for their survival. Because the feeling of unpleasant, which we seem to glom onto a lot, is uh, that, that feeling that alerts us much of the time, not all the time, but may alert us to the fact that there's some threat. It can be low-level, high-level, or medium-level threat to our survival. And so if we don't feel those, it can, be, it can be dangerous. But he said, pay attention to that. Pay attention first to the body and the elements and the postures and the things that make up the body and to our breathing. And then pay attention to what happens when the senses contact, have contact with a, with a sense object, that something arises, co-arises with that contact of feeling. And then he said, pay attention to the emotional life and psychic states that color our existence. That's the third foundation. A kind of broad general term for that is moods of the mind. And then he said, pay attention in the fourth way to ideas, concepts, beliefs, and consciousness that together we call the mind and gave us a, some ways of working with that, of some uh, underlying um, structure through which we can look at our experience in the mind. So classically, these four foundations are known as body, feelings, mind, and mind objects. I don't like the mind objects translation so much. So the Pali word is dhammas. 
and Dhamma is with a small d, not Dhamma as in the teaching of the Buddha, but Dhamma is meaning all of everything that's happening, things, experiences, etc. So just as a short, um, some short notes on the third foundation, which is uh, the important, to me, the important key in this whole schema of foundations of mindfulness. Because it points to, as I said, how we make our world. First verse of the Dhammapada, which is the sayings of the Buddha, is with our minds we make the world. So the, the, uh, the Pali word for that, for this mind, and in, and in Asian languages, including Pali and Sanskrit, the, the, the words heart and mind are not separately translated. In our English and Western languages, heart and mind are separate. But in Asian languages, heart and mind are one. So it's translated as the heart-mind, and it's citta, C-I-T-T-A. And so this heart-mind indicates that we're looking at the feeling tones of the mind, the different uh, colored filters through which we perceive the world. And in the Buddhist system, a mind state can also refer to a condition of awareness, such as concentration or delusion or uh, expansiveness or uh, contraction. So generally speaking, a mind state is what we expect to report on when we ask someone, how are you? So what we're actually saying is, how's your mind state? What's your mind state? Right? So try that when, next time you talk to your friends. Instead of saying, how are you, say, how's your mind state? Right? So uh, the, the importance of this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure is obvious to you, it's just, your mind state is how you feel right now. So paying attention to mind states and how they're produced should, and, and how they're altered also, should be very high on your list of things to do, especially if you tend to states of mind that are depress depressive or destructive. Right? So you can pay attention to them and how they're produced and how they're altered and how they end. Because they do end, but we sometimes become so identified with it, we don't even notice that these are um, what I like to call um, uh, just mind state, adventitious. They come and go, they come and go, they come and go, they come and go because causes and conditions produce them and then when those causes and conditions let go, then the mind state also lets go. But what happens sometimes is we become so, uh, we forget about the projector we forget that they're being produced, and we make them ourselves. And so we think that these are permanent conditions. But if we start to really see how they're produced, and how they're altered, we'll also see how they end. And even experienced practitioners can sometimes, you know, shy away from looking at these mind states. We love to look at the body, right? We kind of get stuck in that first foundation of mindfulness. 
because it's comforting and it's not quite as charged. But there's a close connection between our instinctual reactions and the resulting mind state or emotion. And in fact, this is the link between the second and the third foundations. We react with a simple um, approach or avoidance to a sensation of pleasant or unpleasant, right? So something's pleasant, we move towards it. It's unpleasant, we want to push it away, move away from it. And that routinely leads to a kind of full-blown emotional state of grasping or aversion. And of course, if you've heard um, you know, the basic teachings, you know that what the Buddha said is that suffering is caused by these defilements of mind called grasping, aversion, and delusion. So this is important and worth our attention. So we don't have to be driven by primal or habitual reactions. We bring consciousness to the emotional process. And when we do that, we actually gain some new choices over our feelings and our behavior. And when we can do that, our hearts and minds become freer. And at least to some degree, they become freer from the chains of past conditioning. Because what happens is when we're not conscious of the link between the sensation and the reaction, the sensation, the feeling tone, and the reaction, we take our emotions to be self-generated and freely chosen. And we make each emotion I or self. This is me, this is mine, this is myself. And we become completely identified and lost in it. So what happens with that is we fail to see that these emotions are not personal, that they're kind of part of the human package, right? It's what, what, what we get when we're born. You know, it's part of the package when we come in. And these biological, these, uh, these emotions have important, as I said before, biological functions and survival functions biological origins and survival functions. So we don't have to be driven by them. When we bring consciousness to them, we gain choices. And then when we free our hearts and minds from these instinctual reactions, we, and we become free from the chain of past conditioning and we actually learn how to cultivate the more satisfying states of mind. So in the Abhidhamma, which is the Buddhist psychology, it said there are 120 kinds of consciousness. Only three of these are negative. 
Did you hear what I just said? Only three. So just scan your life and see where you've gotten stuck most of the time. So the Buddha said, the sage is independent. Sorrow and avarice do not cling to him or her as water does not stick to the lotus leaf. So we have 120 classes of consciousness and 89 different mind states. Three of these are negative. It's pretty good, huh? Just think of what, this is part of your human package. So check in during your day. Check in and notice the presence of mind states. So you can do that on your cushion or you can do that in your daily life and see what's driving the engine in any moment. And although it may seem really obvious, the truth is that we're generally not conscious of our mind states or their origin, or how they function in our lives. We're caught in them, we're caught by them, but we rarely, we rarely notice their existence. We don't see our mind's condition because we're inside that condition. This is the brilliance of the Buddha's uh, teaching. And this is kind of the, you know, the linchpin of everything and all of the, all of the, um, the Eightfold Path, and the Four Noble Truths, and all of the, the uh, unfolding of those teachings are pointing to this foundation of mindfulness. So when we check to see how we're feeling, what begins to happen is we discover that we may be inhabited by an emotion. And, that's, and the, that this emotion is just kind of moved in, right? And did you give it permission? You didn't give it permission. It just kind of popped up in your mind-body uh, continuum. And then, you know, you might notice I'm, you're feeling a little bit irritated or, you know, grumpy. And you're snapping at whoever is talking to you or asking you for stuff, right? And if you really check in and you, and you begin to notice, oh, what's this about? You may notice you're hungry or you're thirsty. And the feelings being generated by low blood sugar level. So you could examine a, a bad mood and realize that it started with something that didn't go well. You know, a conversation that you needed to have that you had and it didn't go well and you didn't get to say what you wanted to say. And, the person kind of threw you off because you know, they had a different take on what it was you were talking about. Or somebody made a remark to you. Somebody said something. But the emotional state is still operating and still feeding the momentum. And usually I notice when I check in like that, I'm often not exactly conscious of how I'm feeling. And when I do check in, 
I noticed that the feelings kind of moved in and instead of it being something that's in perspective that it's kind of colored my whole day right I'm snapping at people or reacting in ways that they don't mean or even somebody somebody told me a story the other day of getting an email and she was really grumpy and she felt that the person had said these terrible things about her idea and blah 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 and she went on the whole day and she called other people on it and she was about to you know uh, send another send an email in response and instead she sat down and she um, and she realized oh she was worried about something else she went back and she read the email and the person hadn't said what she thought they'd said. She said, not even close. It wasn't even close. They, she imagined words on that paper or on that screen that literally were not there. So we're not having the feelings they're having us. Right? So the instructions in the sutta tell us to become aware of our mind states and emotions. It says, a meditator knows a lustful mind is lustful. A mind free from lust is free from lust. A hating mind is hating. A mind free from hate is free from hate. And since it can also be distinguished by the degree of consciousness that's present, the meditator is also instructed to notice a distracted mind is distracted. A concentrated mind is concentrated. A deluded mind is deluded. And we don't condemn them and we don't praise them. They're just to be understood as natural occurrences arising as this condition of being human. So this is just a small taste of this third foundation of mindfulness. And just something to reflect on and to really... um, not take as a kind of abstract or conceptual teaching, but to what I hope is that you'll hear it as um, a particular way of practice, that you will incorporate it into your practice. You know, when we do our, our formal meditation, we usually start with the body because we try to get, get ourselves to kind of calm down. You know, so we go into the rhythmic breathing of the the rhythm of the breathing because we know in doing that that there's a tranquility and a gathering of energy that comes and so sometimes we can get stuck thinking that's meditation but that's really the beginning the beginning to get the mind somewhat concentrated and tranquil so that we can use it for insight and this third foundation the second and third foundation of mindfulness are the instructions for using that tranquil mind for um, insight. And from insight comes wisdom. From wisdom comes clarity and the knowing of the uh, true nature of mind. So as you go through your days, begin to really pay attention Pay attention to the mind states. Pay attention to the emotional states. 
And if this strikes you as a teaching that it might be helpful to you, look into it as a teaching also. This is just a really like tiny little fractal of the teaching itself. It's just an introduction into the teaching and there's so much more we could spend days and hours and weeks on it. But it's a beautiful instruction for you to really begin to widen and broaden your experience of meditation. So thank you for listening. So we have a few minutes for questions or comments. Yes, please. Yes, thank you. Um, your last last point about um, knowing the state of your mind as you're experiencing your mind. Um, it seems like that can be a lot of work. And I think a lot of people are very resistant. I have a friend, um, and even myself, it seems like it's a lot of work to keep track of that all the time. Very draining. And I had a thought that, that it's probably for myself as you're also judging your state of mind, as you were saying, that not to do that. But you find that even if you drop the judgment, that it's very draining, or what would you recommend so that it's not draining? So when you say draining, what do you mean? Well, if I, I feel like um, uh, having a, so while I was here this morning, you know, I had lustful thoughts, and it's like noticing, oh, I, I've got lustful thoughts, and is that me or not? You know, if, if I get um, dispassionate about it, oh, I just had lustful thoughts. It's not a problem. But it seems like catching myself all over and over and over and over again. It's like, oh, what is, what am I? Or who am I? Or it's like, it seems like it just feels like low energy that things are progressively getting um, less happy. <laughs> One of those three states of mind. So, I think I'm going to, I might make a wrong assumption about what you're asking, so if I do, please feel free to correct me. But I think what you're talking about is, um, what you're pointing to is, is the fact that um, you're not quite sure what to do with it once you see it. And, and I think that what's required in terms of energy, what's at, what, what's at the base of the energy that you can use in your practice is a real curiosity. So there are factors of awakening, right? There are seven of them. And they can really give some structure and some energy to your practice. So there's mindfulness, right? Surprise, surprise. And then there's investigation, and there's energy, and there's rapture. So those are the first four. And then there's calm, concentration, and equanimity. So these are factors that the Buddha pointed to as um, the factors that we, that we uh, employ 
in our practice. So mindfulness is just is the beginning, right? And it's the base, and it's the kind of seminal and, and key practice that we that we use. But then there are all, there there are many ways in which um, we pay attention to how we come to our cushion and how we come to life, because meditation or mindfulness is not just a uh, sitting practice. It's also a practice in life. So investigation means that there's a kind of curiosity that you bring to your, to your, your awareness. So there's lust. Okay, so how, how do you know you're lost? Well, there's an object um, and just have a feeling. And then also there's a, a dream that goes along to how, how would you respond to that? How would you like to respond to that? How would, what future do you want? Okay, so there's, so, so, so beautiful. So, so you see that there's, there's a whole thinking process that's going on, right? But there's also a body. So first foundation of mindfulness, there are probably physical experiences that are happening with that lust, right? So be curious about that. And, and be careful about assumptions where we just kind of bypass what's habitual, rather than becoming curious and investigative about what's actually happening. So lust is an idea, right? It's a, it's a word that we put on a whole set of responses that are happening. So there's a mind state, and there's a physical state. There are all kinds of things that are going on. So investigation or curiosity gives us some energy. And when, when we allow investigation and curiosity to happen, the energy starts to flow. Okay, so... Yeah, okay. And then out of that, believe it or not, some happiness happens. How many of you have experienced happiness in meditation? And if, and if you don't, if you haven't experienced happiness in meditation, I'm going to hit you over the head <laughs> like a Zen master, right? Because meditation is not about suffering. It's about joy, right? And, and when we really practice deeply and consistently and with skill, because meditation is a learned skill. Joy happens. And that joy brings more energy. And then from that joy and that energy comes calm and concentration and equanimity. So we employ these seven factors of awakening. They're not just a concept or an idea about, oh, these are the seven factors of awakening and I can recite them. It's like, where is that in your practice? Where's the curiosity in your practice? Where's the energy in your practice? Where's the rapture, the joy, the bliss in your practice? If it's not happening, then there are other factors of awakening that are not present. And so investigate, how can I introduce those into my practice? I guess it feels like uh, turning into the stream of mm -hmm. this you know, uh, the expression wind of karma, like you're saying, the habit. And that feels like the energy is being lost. But you're saying that 
to somehow become curious of that, and that would give mm -hmm. you different Whatever kind of Whatever is happening, even if it's judgment of the mind state, what does judgment feel like? What does judgment feel like? How does it feel to, what happens when a mind state arises, you notice it and you judge it? What does that judgment bring to your body? Does it, does it feel uplifted? Does it feel as if the energy is now being pressed down? What happens? So no matter what's happening, so instead of judging the judging, get curious about the judging. Oh, so this is a mind that's judging. What's a mind that's judging feel like? What, is it, what does it do to the body? How does the, what's the energy in the body right now? So that we're, so we're not, we're very efficient. We're not, we're not wasting anything that arises because that becomes our object of mindfulness. So each time you hear these teachings, so somebody will teach you about mindfulness of the body, it doesn't mean, oh, now that's what I have to do, is the mindfulness of the body. It's one part of the teaching. These, are, the, these teachings are full and, um, and depend on each other, and, and they're holographic. If you enter through one door, you begin to see the whole dharma open up. So you look at the whole teaching. So if I teach about the mind states, it doesn't mean now I'm going to look at the mind states so I can, I'm going to forget about the body. It's just a way of emphasizing it's important to look at mind states, but it doesn't mean that we forget about what, what we've heard before about the body or about Vedana or feelings. So one more and then we have to stop. Thank you so much. Um, I, just, I really enjoyed a comment you made towards the beginning about um, having a thought and feeling like, oh, this is great, I need to, or wanting to write it down. And I don't do that, but I do find myself um, repeating that so I don't forget it throughout the meditation. And, um, and I'm just, I wanted to tell myself and just see if you had any uh, ideas about that. Yeah, so, you know, so we operate on fear a lot. So when, when that comes up, again, pay attention. What's that about? Is that a, that's a lack of confidence in your own ability to remember? Or maybe it's a learned habit of, oh, when I write things down, you know, then I can capture them, and otherwise I'll forget them. Just some idea that we're believing about ourselves or believing about the world. And what's beautiful about these teachings is they teach us to examine every single assumption we have, even if they're learned behaviors that were useful to us at some time in the past. Usually that's what happens, is a learned behavior was useful to respond to some situation that we had in the past. And we've lost discrimination and discernment as to when those behaviors are useful and when they're destructive. Because the same behavior in one situation may not be appropriate in another, which is why mindfulness allows us to see what's happening in this present moment so that we can respond appropriately, rather than assuming that we already know the response or we already know the situation, because everything changes all the time. Nothing is ever the same. So even when you write down what I've said, sometimes I've taken notes when, I'm, when I listen to a teaching and then I go back and think, what the heck was that about? I've got the faintest idea why I even wrote it down. I'll tell you one story and then we have to end of Ram Das talking about 
being on an acid trip in a cave, and he got the answer. He got the answer. The, the whole key to everything was revealed, right? And he didn't have pen and he didn't have paper, but he knew it was like really important, right? So he took a rock and he scratched the answer on the wall of the cave. Went to sleep, woke up the next morning, couldn't wait, and when he looked, what did he scratch? And. <laughs> and. <laughs> and, A-N-D. And. So, in that moment, when he got that, it obviously, in the context of that moment, maybe, given his mind at the time, you know, had significance. But then things change, right? Whether it was his mind state or whatever, but things change. So, you know, how are we being moment to moment to moment, and are we being appropriate in every moment because we're really clear about what's true right now? And, and we can have confidence in that if, our, if, if we are nurturing our practice. And if we don't have confidence in that, we'll be operating with fear. I'm not going to know it. I'm not going to know how to do this. I'm not going to, you know, all, all of the fearful thing, stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and how we are in life. So can we instead operate in confidence of our uh, with our practice. So that's all the time we have today. So we'll close with a um, um, dedication of merit. So when we practice together, there is a field of uh, goodness and merit that is generated by the practice and the reflections that we do together. And instead of keeping that for ourselves, we recognize that because we are inextricably interwoven into the fabric of life, we are interdependent with all other beings with whom we share this planet and this universe. We take that merit and we distribute it among all of the beings that are part of us and of, which, of whom we are a part. So we dedicate the merit of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. Wishing again for the safety the happiness and peace, the health and the ease, the freedom from suffering and the freedom for all beings everywhere. May it be so. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.